Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products such as printed t-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers, banners, signage and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. It's 1972, and the location is Walt Disney Studios. The chief of animation, as well as four other animation specialists, have just finished watching a first-generation copy of a short film showing what looks like a living, breathing, moving creature which should only exist in folklore and in the minds of movie makers and writers. Even Disney executive Ken Peterson is hugely impressed with how the filmmakers have made this creature look so real. When Peterson asks the man who had brought the footage into Disney which studio had been producing it, he got the shock of his life when he was told that it hadn't been filmed in a studio. It had been filmed in the forests of California. This is the second part in our end of season special on the legend that is Bigfoot. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at the most famous piece of Bigfoot evidence of all time, the Patterson-Gimlin film. It was seasoned Bigfoot researcher Peter Byrne who made the first generation copy available to Disney Studios back in 1972. Byrne had obtained the copy from another researcher by the name of John Green and was incredibly curious to find out what the best special effects artists of the day would think of it. Needless to say, Disney was stumped when they found out that this creature hadn't been created in a studio and the film hadn't been shot on a movie set. Ken Peterson, his chief animator and all four assistants were completely convinced that whatever the creature was in the footage, it wasn't something that they could put together. John Green interviewed the Disney employees himself and was then wholly convinced that whatever species of animal was in that footage was real. 
But what was the story behind this amazing film which lasted just 59.5 seconds? And who were the people who managed to film it? Well, we'll need to go back to the year 1966. Roger Patterson was quite the entrepreneur and was always looking for the next get-rich-quick scheme, including a hoop toy which, like literally all of Patterson's ideas and inventions, didn't quite take off. He'd been completely obsessed by the idea of a Bigfoot-type creature roaming around the forests of North America and Canada since reading an article by Ivan Sanderson in 1959 and was determined to get in on the action. Both Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin had been friends for a number of years. These two men were serious cowboys, who had also rode many times in rodeos. So they weren't the kind of men to be frightened by going into the wilderness in search of a strange mythical animal. As far as they were concerned, they'd seen it all. But if they could just get one of these animals on film, it could make them rich. In 1966, Roger Patterson began development of a documentary-type project, which would mix real stories of encounters of Bigfoot alongside fictional characters telling these stories. The fictional characters would be a number of cowboys, a miner, which would be played by Patterson, and a Native American Indian guide, which would have been played by Bob Gimlin. Patterson had already written a book about Bigfoot called Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? which contained various tales of encounters supported by news articles, drawings, and even maps of where these incidents had taken place. The book was self-published and didn't really gain that much traction, so it made perfect sense to combine the book with the documentary. After a lot of persuasion from Patterson, Gimlin agreed to go out into the wilderness with him to shoot some footage for the documentary, but to also hopefully film a real live Bigfoot. Supplies were gathered together with a view to move out as soon as they had an area where sightings or footprints had been reported. And it didn't take long for a location to rear its head. Roger Patterson had asked a number of friends and store owners in Willow Creek to keep him informed of any sightings or footprints which had been recently discovered. And on a trail near the Blue Creek Mountain, Researcher John Green, who was mentioned near the beginning of this episode, along with famous Bigfoot hunter René Darhinden, had stumbled upon some tracks. This was all that Patterson needed, so when the 20th of October 1967 came around, he had already filmed some scenery shots to include in the documentary. Roger Patterson, Bob Gimlin, their horses and provisions had made their way to their location of choice which was an area of the Six Rivers National Forest. They were riding their horses along the banks of Bluff Creek when all of a sudden Bob Gimlin recalls Roger's horse became spooked by something. Something that was only spoken about as legend. Bob Gimlin saw a large Bigfoot standing on the opposite side of the creek. Their supplies pack horse also then became spooked and ran some distance away scattering food and other essentials as it ran. As Roger grabbed his rented Cine Kodak K100 16mm movie camera from a saddlebag, his horse literally threw him to the ground, at which point Roger began to record and steady himself. 
It was at this time that the creature made a head turn over its right shoulder to look where both men were as it walked away at speed. Roger shouted to Bob to cover him as he tried to get to a better vantage point at the downed tree trunk. Bob still sat on his horse, readied his rifle and got the creature in his sights. Fully prepared to pull the trigger if this huge beast turned around and began to charge at them. As the Bigfoot continued to walk away from Roger and Bob, it briefly became hidden by the cover of a number of trees, before reappearing again and retreating further into the forest. Roger had again tried to get to a better vantage point, but by this time the creature was almost completely shielded by trees, and then the reel of film came to an end. Bob Gimlin, however, decided to take his initiative and follow the Bigfoot for as long as he possibly could on horseback, making sure to keep a somewhat safe distance between himself and the creature. After a short time, Bob heard Roger calling out his name, so he quickly returned to his friend. Roger Patterson stated that after Bob had decided to follow the Bigfoot, he realized that he was without his horse, without his gun, and without his friend. What if there was another creature close by that decided to become hostile? Before we carry on with this episode, I'd just like to tell you about the Haunted UK podcast's coffee account. If you love the show and want to help out that little bit more, then get yourself over to coffee, that's K-O hyphen F-I, and search for the Haunted UK podcast. And for just a subscription of £3 per month, you'll get a shout out in an episode of the main show, chances to get your hands on free Haunted UK podcast merchandise, and you'll also soon be in line for bonus content bite-sized episodes. Getting to a target of at least 30 subscribers is the aim, and I know that with your help, it's easily achievable. And it's literally just the price of buying one coffee per month. If you'd rather not subscribe, then you can simply make a one-off donation. Every little bit helps. So if you want to help the podcast grow to the next level, then pop over to coffee and make your donation. Coffee. Why not buy us one? Now, let's get back to the episode. Credit must be given to these two men for thinking on their feet, as they seem to be doing all the right things. After the encounter, they managed to round up both Roger's horse and their pack horse. Then, using another roll of film, Roger made sure to get footage of the tracks which the Bigfoot had left behind. But they wanted more proof. They decided to try and track the creature as far as possible, and they managed to follow its path for around a mile before the undergrowth became too thick to get through. For a human, at least. They then returned to their camp and grabbed some plaster to take casts of the footprints, making sure to get one from each foot and only pouring the plaster into the very best print impressions. After they made their way to Willow Creek, they met up with Al Hodgson. You'll remember him from part one of this series and told him about the encounter, the film and the footprints. It was here that Roger Patterson got in touch with his brother-in-law, Al Diatli, to inform him of the film that they had in their possession and that he was going to ship it to him so that he could get it developed. Roger also made a second call to a scientist named Donald Abbott, who had a huge interest in the whole Bigfoot phenomena. He asked Abbott if he would come back to the site of the encounter with his tracking dogs, 
in the hope that they could find the creature. But Abbott turned Patterson down. Both Roger and Bob were sure that the Bigfoot was female because of the breasts which they could clearly see at the time of the event and which could now be seen on the film. They estimated that the creature was between 6 foot 6 to 7 foot 6 inches tall and weighing in at around 300 to 350 pounds, or for those of us in the UK, between 21 to 25 stone. The sheer size and bulk of this creature was astonishing, and it was made even more incredible by the way it moved so effortlessly over the terrain. Now you would have thought that after this film had been developed and shown, the scientific community would have gone wild. But you'd be wrong. In all fairness to Patterson, he tried desperately to share this discovery with the scientific world, and even after many screenings of the film, there wasn't really that much interest. It was mostly met with derision and accusations of it being an elaborate hoax, and although it made Patterson and Diatli a decent amount of money, it also led to the breakdown of his friendship with the man who was with him at the time of the sighting. Bob Gimlin. Gimlin felt pushed out by the deals that were being made behind his back, and whilst Patterson and Diatli were giving interviews on both TV and radio, Gimlin's agreed one-third share of the profits made from the film never materialised. Bob Gimlin stopped giving interviews and almost withdrew from the Bigfoot scene altogether, choosing instead to just get back on with his life and try to forget that the whole incident had occurred. Gimlin's wife was also struggling with the publicity that the film had generated around them and just wanted to get back to some sort of normality. The kind of normality that didn't involve Bigfoot. Gimlin had had his fair share of humiliation at the hands of Patterson as well, with some of the events that happened after the pair fell out genuinely hurting Bob. One in particular happened two or three years after the film had been shot. Bob had been working with his horses when he received a message to call a friend of his back, as he had some urgent news. This friend of Bob's lived a good few miles away in a small town down south, and the pair would meet up every so often when they were close. Gimlin picked up the phone and began speaking to his friend, and he could immediately tell that he was annoyed about something. He explained to Bob that he had caught wind of a presentation of a film, accompanied by a lecture, which was going to take place in his town showing footage of a mysterious creature. Gimlin knew straight away what film this was, and was almost dismissive in regard to his involvement with the whole event, stating that he almost wished it had never taken place at all, as it had brought him abuse and bad luck. But it was what he was told next that hurt Bob the most. As his friend was watching the film and then listening to the lecture, Roger Patterson introduced a man to the audience by the name of Bob Gimlin, a cowboy who had been there and witnessed the whole encounter. Out walked an actor who began to retell his portion of the story as if he was the real Bob Gimlin. Bob's friend had said that he felt like getting up and shouting out to Roger Patterson that he was a good friend of Bob Gimlin's and the man on stage was an imposter but he wanted to contact Bob directly to tell him what had gone on. Gimlin could have chosen to contact Patterson and air his anger and concern at the fact that his once good friend would sooner use an actor than Bob himself, but he chose to keep quiet 
and just let the situation almost dissolve into the past. Bob Gimlin just didn't want or need the hassle or aggravation. He'd made his mind up to carry on with his life and get back to the job he loved best, horse whispering. Just a few short years after the whole saga had happened, tragedy struck in the form of the death of Roger Patterson from Hodgkin's lymphoma. And whilst this put an end to one of the two witnesses who were there on that fascinating day, a friendship was rekindled just before Roger's passing. Bob Gimlin had heard that Roger was seriously ill and realizing the gravity of the situation, Gimlin decided to take up Roger's offer of meeting him in hospital. Bob recalls that Roger was in a really bad way when the two met in Roger's hospital room. The two spoke of old times and then Roger made a point of apologizing for all of the dealings that had gone on behind Bob's back. He also apologized for how their friendship had gone sour over the years since the sighting had happened and for also using an actor to represent him when he should have just taken Bob along on the tours. Bob said that even at this tragic time in Roger's life, he still made a promise to Bob that he was going to beat the cancer, recover, get well, and then he and Bob were going to, quote, get back out there and get that big son of a gun, end quote. Bob smiled, agreed with his friend, and told him to just take it easy and get well, but this never happened, and shortly after, Roger Patterson passed away. Famed Bigfoot hunter and tracker Peter Byrne said that when he spoke to Patterson shortly before his death, he recalled that Roger said something along the lines of that if he could have relived the same experience again, he would have shot and killed the Bigfoot just to prove its existence. And this is also an option that Bob Gimblin sometimes still voices to this day. After all, Gimlin's life was literally made into a living hell for years by yobs and hecklers who would even drive up to his house and hurl abuse at both him and his wife. He believes that while he didn't have any intention to kill the creature, if he'd have pulled the trigger of his rifle while he was covering Roger while he filmed it, at least they would have had a body to prove what they had witnessed. As already stated, even to this day, the Patterson-Gimlin film divides Bigfoot believers and critics alike, as well as certain members of the scientific community. But let's go back and look at some of the many huge points which may convince you that the creature in that film was truly what both men thought it was, a real Bigfoot. Before we carry on, why not listen to the following great podcast? Scotland's history is ghoulish, ghastly, and at times downright gruesome. Who wouldn't want to hear more about it? If you're interested in learning more about Scotland's history, legends and ghost stories, then the Generally Spooky podcast is for you. My name is Ailey, researcher, storyteller and believer in ghosts. And my name is Kieran. I'm chief listener, provider of jokes and Ailey's husband. And we are the co-hosts of the Generally Spooky podcast. Join us as we discuss things like the Loch Ness Monster, the Mackenzie Poltergeist, the Battle of Culloden and so much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find us for free on YouTube and over at our website, generallyspooky.com. We'll see you there. See you there. Now it's back to the show. 
First of all, let's take a look at the film and some of the characteristics that the creature displays as it moves. M.K. Davis is a famous Bigfoot hunter who has been one of the many people to go over the Patterson-Gimlin film frame by frame, and he made a discovery that completely solidified his and many others' beliefs that the creature in the film was real. Frame 61 shows the creature's right foot up at a vertical angle as it prepares to move it back down and begin to plant it back onto the floor. In this image, you can clearly see the pad of the foot and also the individual digits of the toes. Well, so what, I hear you cry. Big deal, what does that prove? Well, take a look at the best movies that Hollywood could offer at around the same time that the Patterson-Gimlin film was shot. In 1968, The Planet of the Apes was released starring Charlton Heston and Roddy McDowell. And whilst the costumes in that movie were revolutionary, they were nowhere near as realistic as the creature in the Patterson-Gimlin film. There is defined muscle structure and also visible muscle movement when the Bigfoot is walking, something that just wasn't possible by the special effects departments of the day. And it's still not possible even today. CGI is now used. Also in 1968, 2001 A Space Odyssey was released, but again, Whilst the ape suits were incredibly impressive for the day, they still fall short to the realism displayed by the creature in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Simply putting the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot down to being a man in a suit just doesn't cut it. And to give even more weight to this argument, you only have to read the in-depth analysis report which special effects artist William Bill Munns released. After years of research, and for the first time, scanning every single frame of the Patterson-Gimlin film at 4K resolution, Bill Munns was able to deep dive into the detail of the film, the camera, the location, and the creature itself. He has studied the locomotive movement of the creature, its fur, its muscle movement under the hair, its alleged size, and he is 100% positive that whatever the being is in that film, it's definitely not a man in a suit. There's also a moment in the film where the Bigfoot gives that now famous look over its right shoulder, cautiously making sure that neither Roger Patterson nor Bob Gimlin got any closer to it. It's the detail of this head movement that also gives further weight to this animal being an ape-like bipedal hominid rather than a human in a suit. Both Jeffrey Meldrum, who is a professor of anatomy and anthropology in the Department of Biological Sciences at Idaho State University, and Grover Krantz, now deceased, who was also an anthropologist, state that the head movement which the creature displayed is exactly the same as many of the great apes, such as the chimpanzee, the gorilla, and the orangutan. These apes simply cannot turn their heads to look at something almost behind them. Instead, they have to almost tilt their heads back and around because of their neck and shoulders. This is the same movement which the Bigfoot in the Patterson-Gimlin film displays with that now famous head turn. But there's also another huge piece of evidence which goes a long way to proving that what was in that film was a living, breathing creature. Its footprints. If you're familiar with the show Finding Bigfoot, which ran for 100 episodes from 2011 to 2018, you'll recognize the name Cliff Barrickman. 
Now we all know that with shows such as Finding Bigfoot, there will always be an element of artistic license added to give extra dramatization and amusement. But one thing to know about Cliff Barrickman is that he has been a very serious Bigfoot researcher for well over 25 years. And he has one of the most sought after collections of Bigfoot footprint casts in the world. The Patterson-Gimlin casts and photographs of the footprints left by the creature show some amazing detail. The first is the flexibility in the trailing leg as the creature is seen taking its entire heel from the ground but still keeping its forefoot on the floor. This is evident in the casts, photos and the film. The next detail is a distinct pressure ridge which is the result of the push-off executed when we drive our feet down to power forward. Professor Jeffrey Meldrum has also been studying this particular characteristic for years and according to him, Barrickman and many other serious Bigfoot researchers, this is one piece of evidence that is literally the game-changer. These footprint details are also impressive in the fact that the same characteristics can be found in other footprint casts from other countries, such as China and Russia. Again, huge countries where a creature such as Bigfoot could easily survive without hardly ever being discovered or seen. And also another pointer towards the theory that these animals migrated when the Bering Sea land bridge was in existence. Now, as with all major sightings of Bigfoot, some people have come forward to state that they were involved in the Patterson-Gimlin film and it was all just a hoax. One of these people in particular is one Bob Hieronymus. Cool name. Bob came forward in 2004, 37 years after the Patterson-Gimlin film was shot, to say that he was the Bigfoot in the film. But his story continued to change as the years went by. First of all, Bob said that Roger Patterson approached him with the offer of $1,000 to wear a costume to try and fool people into thinking that he and Bob Gimlin had discovered and filmed a real Bigfoot. The original costume was allegedly made from the hide of a horse which Roger Patterson killed for that exact reason. But then another individual by the name of Philip Morris of Morris Costumes came forward with a claim that it was him who designed a specific gorilla costume which was ordered by none other than Roger Patterson himself. But it gets a little more complicated yet. Bob Hieronymus changed his mind when he stated that it wasn't the horsehide costume made by Roger Patterson that he was wearing in the film, it was now a gorilla costume made by Planet of the Apes costume designer John Chambers. A claim that has never been proven. But we'll move on with the story. So we now have three costumes, three possibilities, and it seems that Hieronymus was thinking similar thoughts because he changed his mind again. This time he said that he and Philip Morris were working together alongside Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin, and on the day of filming he was wearing a two-piece gorilla costume but Morris stated that it was three-piece. So who was lying here, and who was telling the truth, if there was a truth? Even if we go along with the Morris Hieronymus storyline, why would you wait 37 years to come forward to expose all of this as a hoax? Well, according to Bob Hieronymus, it was because he was sick of waiting for the $1,000 which Roger Patterson had promised him, but had never paid him and he was also jealous of the fact that both Patterson and Gimlin had made so much money from the footage. 
but they didn't. And that is common knowledge. Whilst it gave Patterson a decent return, it never made him millions at all. And Bob Gimlin received literally nothing. So again, what's the motivation for coming forward? Moving on to Philip Morris, his conscience decided to persuade him to come forward as he had allegedly became overcome and heavy with guilt at harboring such a huge secret. Morris pointed out that he had worked for many clients in the TV and movie industries and revealing such secrets as the construction and design of costumes and props is very much frowned upon. But is this a truly believable reason for waiting 37 years? Neither Hieronymus or Morris could get their stories to match up with each other, but as with many others who have come forward to allegedly expose a story as a hoax, think back to Ray Wallace's wooden Bigfoot tracks. The media simply eat it up and have no time for counter-arguments. As mentioned at the start of this episode, Disney's special effects department freely admitted that they couldn't recreate a costume that looked anything like as realistic as what was in the film. We've also already heard from William Bill Munns regarding his thoughts on a costume being worn by an individual, but they're still not the only professional special effects artists who have thrown their support at the authenticity of the creature in the Patterson-Gimlin film. Before we carry on, here's another great promo for a brilliant podcast that you should listen to. Hello and welcome to Horror Roulette, where you never know what you're going to get. We're your hosts, I'm Em. And that's my brother, Nick. Each week, we spin the Wheel of Misfortune to randomly generate an episode topic, which makes our lives miserable, but this podcast listenable. We've covered everything from the Toy Box Killer to Jack and Jill. From Ed Wood to Black Widows, we've suffered through it all. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out at HorrorRoulette.com. Listen if you dare. Now, it's back to the show. John Chambers, who, if you remember, was dragged into this argument by Bob Hieronymus as the person who allegedly made a gorilla costume used in one scenario of the Patterson-Gimlin film, stated in an interview in 1997 that he could never have made a costume which would have looked as good as whatever the creature was in the film. He also admitted that he'd let the rumour mill continue to swirl around the accusation of him being the creator of a costume, because at the time, it was good business. And let's face it, Chambers was very highly regarded in the special effects industry, with credits such as the Planet of the Apes series of movies, Star Trek, Jaws, Halloween, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Munsters, and many, many more. Even Peter Brook, who was a creative supervisor at the world-famous Jim Henson Creature Shop, shot down the possibility of the Bigfoot in the Patterson-Gimlin film being a man in a costume by saying, quote, If this is a hoax, it's one of the great practical jokes of all time, end quote. There are also other aspects of the creature which need to be addressed, such as the build, posture, and walking gait which is displayed. Thanks to the huge amount of research and study completed by William Bill Munns, we have a much better understanding of the skeletal and muscular build of the creature in the film. It makes no difference how good a costume is with a person inside it, the joints of elbows and knees cannot be altered. But the Bigfoot in the Patterson-Gimlin film has knee joints which are much lower than any human, 
and this was discovered by Munns aligning a similar-sized human over the top of the high-resolution 4K frames. If you try to line the knee joints up, the location of the shoulders and hips become completely off-kilter. The same was discovered about the creature's arms, which were longer than a human's, with the hips also being lower down. You simply can't recreate this with a costume. Then there's the strange walking gait that this creature displays as it's moving. The angle and position of the feet as they move through their walking process is very strange, and also very difficult to try and replicate, and many have tried. Its nature of locomotion is something which is obviously part of the creature's biological makeup, and this is completely different to that of a human. So what could this creature possibly be if we are to truly believe that it's not a man in a costume? In 1935, in an area of China, a number of teeth were discovered that were completely out of the ordinary. These molars were huge, measuring around 20 millimeters by 22 millimeters, way bigger than any human or ape. More teeth were discovered in the most unlikeliest of places, a Chinese traditional medicine store. But these were being advertised as dragon bones, from this period to present day, over a thousand teeth have been recovered, along with jaw bones from over 16 different sites in South China. There have even been teeth found in caves in Vietnam, which have striking similarities to the ones found in China. So what is this animal? Given the name Gigantopithecus blackie, this creature could be considered the starting point in the evolution of Bigfoot as a species. From the remains which have been found, it's been calculated that Gigantopithecus could have been up to 12 feet tall and weighing in excess of at least 600 pounds. Muscle mass calculations have also brought forward the speculation that this beast was between 15 to 25 percent stronger than a gorilla, and that's a frightening thought. So what happened to this ape? Well, Fossilized discoveries have given this creature a number of dates throughout history, with the species said to have been roaming the tropical climates of the Asian continent as far back as 2 million years, and its extinction estimated to be around 300,000 years ago. Over this huge period of time, it's more than possible that Gigantopithecus could have evolved into a number of subspecies such as the common Bigfoot-type animal which is mostly described in witness reports in the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada. Then there's the Yeti, which allegedly calls the colder climates of the Himalayas and surrounding areas its home. The Bigfoot subspecies could have easily crossed over the Bering Sea land bridge and settled in the dense forests and woodlands of America and Canada, and then continued to evolve. Finding itself then cut off from Asia, as the world warmed up, the ice sheets melted and the sea levels rose, covering the land bridge. But there are a few issues with this theory. The main one being that so many witnesses have commented that the creature's face has eerie similarities to that of humans. So could it be related to us? The fossil records show without a shadow of a doubt that us Homo sapiens had a variety of relatives that went back around 3.2 million years. Our earliest known hominid relative was discovered in Ethiopia in 1974 when a foot bone was found. 
but another discovery managed to put together almost 40% of a female skeleton of this ancestor. So what's stopping one of these subspecies evolving into something that we know today as Bigfoot? Well, nothing really. This is more than possible, and there is one particular candidate that could fit the Bigfoot profile very well. Known as Homo heidelbergensis, this ancient human relative lived on our planet around half a million years ago. This species showed great levels of intelligence, using weapons to hunt large prey and also being able to harness the power of fire in using it to its own advantage. Both males and females of this species could have attained the heights of humans today with some becoming much taller. So is it possible that an offshoot of our ancient human ancestors, such as Homo heidelbergensis, could have come together with another species and created a hybrid race that evolved over hundreds of thousands of years? Evolution is an amazing thing, and we only have to look at the fossil records from species of animals all over the world to see just how amazing life is at being able to adapt to change. But one of the main sticking points regarding the Bigfoot legend that the skeptics quite rightly put forward is why hasn't there been any discoveries of remains? Bones, teeth, a body? Many Bigfoot researchers and hunters will counter this argument saying that the very best recycler of a dead animal is nature itself. When something dies in a wild habitat, it is very quickly eaten by predators, scavengers, or opportunist animals who just happen to discover the body. Literally all of it consumed and scattered. So many hunters will testify to never seeing a dead bear, or mountain lion, or moose. Nature will take care of itself. That is, unless Bigfoot is a species that buries its own dead. This is also a theory that has been put forward many times by researchers such as Peter Byrne, who have a strong belief that this could be the main reason why a body or remains have never been found. It was a German military officer by the name of Robert von Behring who first discovered the mountain gorilla in just 1902 by shooting and killing two animals and shipping their bodies back to Germany to the Berlin Zoological Museum for study. That's just 120 years ago which is nothing when you consider just how long life has been abundant on our planet. Maybe both Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were right in thinking that they should have just shot the Bigfoot instead of filming it, and then trying to track it afterwards. It would have also completely cleared up the debate once and for all. But it would have also put an end to one of the most tantalizing mysteries left in our world. Is Bigfoot real? or not. Bob Gimlin is now in his 90s and still attends some conferences and takes part in a few TV specials, most notably Finding Bigfoot, Episode 1 of Season 2, Birth of a Legend, where the team actually went out to the film's location with the man himself, Bob Gimlin. As already stated, you have to take many of these types of programs with a pinch of salt due to the artistic license and editing that they use to drive the shows forward but seeing Bob out there on horseback and talking about the encounter in the actual place it happened was pretty special. Bob spoke with amazing passion as if the sighting happened just days before, and to the team, it was a dream come true. 
He's the only link that he's left alive to that fateful day in 1967. And he's never changed his story. In all of his appearances and interviews, he is 100% certain that what he saw on that day was a real, living, breathing Bigfoot. And if Roger Patterson was conducting a hoax of some sort, then he knew nothing about it. Bob has also said on numerous occasions that there is no way that he would have taken part in any type of hoax to knowingly fool the public. So just like many pieces of footage of the paranormal, we're left here to ponder whether the creature in that film was real. We're left to try and decide if we think that both Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were totally honest and that a hoax was the furthest thing from their minds. As we've already spoken about earlier in this episode, Roger Patterson was already going to make a Bigfoot documentary regardless of what happened when they went out to Bluff Creek. Maybe they just got lucky with their timing. A simple case of being in the right place at the right time. And that's where we're going to leave this episode. But in the next and last episode in this three-part series, we'll go through a few relatively recent Bigfoot encounters that happen to everyday people and in turn completely change their beliefs in the possibility of this creature going from legend to reality. Until then, what do you think of the Patterson-Gimlin film? Man in a costume? Or is it the real thing? Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd like to give a few shout-outs. And the first one is to all of you the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rising rapidly and that's all down to you. So, huge thanks to you all. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a third season. Huge thanks to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is a request to all you listeners out there again. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on Season 3's Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, 
or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hales Owen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening, and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.